Section 12 of the South Pole. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Ken Campbell. The South Pole by Roald Amundsen. Translation by A.G. Carter. Section 12, Volume 1, Chapter 5. On the Barrier, Part 2. On January 17th, the carpenters began to dig the foundations of the house. The effect of all that we had heard about the Antarctic storms was that we decided to take every possible precaution to make the house stand on an even keel. The carpenters, therefore, began by digging a foundation four feet down into the barrier. This was not easy work. Two feet below the surface they came upon hard, smooth ice and had to use pickaxes. The same day a stiff easterly breeze sprang up, whirling the snow high into the air and filling up the foundations as fast as the men dug them. But it would take more than that to stop those fellows at their work. They built a wind screen of planks and did it so well that they were able to work all day, unhindered by the drifts, until when evening came they had the whole foundation dug out. There is no difficulty in doing good work when one has such people to work for one. The stormy weather interfered somewhat with our sledging, and, as we found our Alaska harness unsuitable to the conditions, we went on board and began the preparation of Greenland harness for our dogs. All hands worked at it. Our excellent sailmaker Ronnie sewed forty-six sets of harnesses in the course of the month. The rest of us spliced the ropes and made the necessary tackles, while others spliced wire rope shafts to our sledges. When evening came, we had an entirely new set of tackles for all our sledges and dogs. This was very successful, and in a few days the whole was working smoothly. We had now divided ourselves into two tents, so that five men slept in the lower tent, while the two carpenters and I inhabited the upper one. That evening a rather amusing thing happened to us. We were just turning in when suddenly we heard a penguin's cry immediately outside the tent. We were out in a moment. There, a few yards from the door, sat a big emperor penguin, making bow after bow. It gave exactly the impression of having come up simply to pay us respects. We were sorry to repay its attention so poorly. But such is the way of the world. With a final bow, it ended its days in the frying pan. On January 18th, we began bringing up the materials for the hut. And as soon as they arrived, the builders began to put them up. It is no exaggeration to say that everything went like a well-oiled machine. One sledge after another drove up to the site and discharged its load. The dogs worked splendidly, and their drivers no less, and as fast as the materials arrived our future home rose into the air. All parts had been marked before leaving Norway and were now discharged from the ship in the order in which they were wanted. Besides which, Stuart himself had built the house so he knew every peg of it. It is with gladness and pride that I look back upon those days, with gladness because no discord was ever heard in the course of this fairly severe labor, with pride because I was at the head of such a body of men. For men they were, in the true sense of the word. Everyone knew his duty and did it. During the night the wind dropped and the morning brought the finest weather, calm and clear. It was a pleasure to work on days like this. Both men and dogs were in the best of spirits. On these journeys between the ship and the station, we were constantly hunting seals, but we only took those that came in our way. We never had to go far to find fresh meat. 
we used to come suddenly upon a herd of them. They were then shot, flayed, and loaded on the sledges with the provisions and building materials. The dogs feasted in those days. They had as much warm flesh as they wanted. On January 20th we had taken up all the building materials and could then turn our attention to provisions and stores. The work went merrily backwards and forwards, and the journey to the Fram in the morning with empty sledges was especially enjoyable. The track was now well worn and hard, and resembled a good Norwegian country road more than anything else. The going was splendid. On coming out of the tent at six o'clock in the morning, one was instantly greeted with joy by one's own twelve dogs. They barked and they howled in emulation, tugged and jerked at their chains to get their master, and jumped and danced about with joy. Then one would first go down the line and say good morning to each of them, in turn patting them and saying a few words. Splendid beasts they were. The one who had taken notice of showed every sign of happiness. The most petted of our domestic dogs could not have shown greater devotion than these tamed wolves. All the time the others were yelling and pulling at their chains to get at the one who was being petted, for they are jealous in the extreme. When they had all received their share of attention, the harnesses were brought out, and then the jubilation broke out afresh. Strange as it may seem, I can assert that these animals love their harness. Although they must know that it means hard work, they all show signs of the greatest rapture at the sight of it. I must hasten to add, however, that this only happens at home. Long and fatiguing sledge journeys show a very different state of things. When it came to harnessing, the first trouble of the day began. It was impossible to get them to stand still. The full meal of the previous evening, followed by the night's rest, had given them such a superabundance of energy and joy of life that nothing could make them stand still. They had to have a taste of the whip, yet it was a pity to start that. After having securely anchored the sledge, one was ready at last with one's team of six dogs harnessed. Now it might be thought that all was plain sailing, and that one had only to cast off one's moorings and be taken straight down to the ship. But that was far from being the case. Round about the camp a number of objects had collected in a short time, such as packing cases, building materials, empty sledges, and so on, and to steer clear of these was the great problem of the morning. The dog's greatest interest was, of course, concentrated upon these objects, and one had to be extremely lucky to avoid a spill. Let us follow one of these morning drives. The men are all ready and have their dogs well harnessed. One, two, three, and we let them all go at once. We are off like the wind, and before one has time to swing the whip, one finds himself in the middle of a heap of building materials. The dogs have achieved the desire of their lives. To be able to make a thorough investigation of these materials in the way that is so characteristic of the dog and so incomprehensible to us. While this process is going on with the greatest enjoyment, the driver has got clear of the sledge and begins to disentangle the traces which have wound themselves round planks and posts and whatever else may be laying handy. He is far from having achieved the desire of his life, to judge from the expression he uses. At last he is clear again. He looks round first and finds he is not the only one who has met with difficulties in the way. Over there, among the cases, he sees the performance going on which makes his heart leap with joy. One of the old hands has come to grief, 
and in so decisive a fashion that it will take him a long time to get clear again. With a triumphant smile, he throws himself on the sledge and drives off. So long as he is on the barrier, as a rule, everything goes well. There is nothing here to distract the dogs. It is otherwise when he comes down to the sea ice. Here seals lie scattered about in groups basking in the sunshine, and it may easily happen that his course will be rather crooked. If a team of fresh dogs have made up their minds to turn aside in the direction of the herd of seals, it takes a very experienced driver to get them in the right way again. Personally, on such occasions, I used the only remedy I could see, namely capsizing the sledge. In loose snow, with the sledge upset, they soon fold up. Then, if one is wise, one puts them on the right course again quietly and calmly, hoisting the sledge up on an even keel and went on. But one is not always wise, unfortunately. The desire to be revenged on the disobedient rascals gets the upper hand, and one begins to deal out punishment. But this is not so easy as it seems. So long as you are sitting on the capsized sledge, it makes a good anchor. But now, without a load, it is no use, and the dogs know that. So while you are thrashing one, the others start off, and the result is not always flattering to the driver. If he is lucky, he gets onto the capsized sledge again. But we have seen dogs and sledges arrive without drivers. All this trouble in the early morning sets the blood in active circulation, and one arrives at the ship drenched with perspiration, in spite of the temperature of minus five degrees Fahrenheit. But it sometimes happens that there is no interruption, and the drive is soon over. The dogs want no encouragement. They are willing enough. The mile and a quarter from the lower camp to the Fram is then covered in a few minutes. When we came out of the tent on the morning of January 21st, we were greatly surprised. We thought we must be mistaken, rubbed our eyes, opened them wider, but no, it was no good. The Fram was no longer to be seen. It had been blowing pretty strongly during the night with snow squalls. Presumably the weather had forced them to put out. We could also hear the roar of the sea dashing against the barrier. Meanwhile, we lost no time. The day before, Captain Nielsen and Christensen had shot forty seals, and of all these we had brought in half the same day. Now we began to fetch in the rest. During the forenoon, while we were flaying and shooting seals, we heard the old well-known sound, but, 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 of the Fram's motor, and presently the crow's nest appeared above the barrier. But she did not get into her old berth before evening. A heavy swell had forced her to go outside. Meanwhile, the carpenters were busily constructing the hut. By January 21st, the roof was on, and the rest of the work could thus be done under cover. This was a great comfort to the men. At that time, their job was undoubtedly the worst of any. Bitterly cold it was for them, but I never heard them talk about it. When I came up to the tent after a day's work, one of them was busy cooking. The meal always consisted of pancakes and pitch-black strong coffee. How good it tasted! A rivalry soon arose between the two cook carpenters as to which of them could make the best pancakes. I think they were both clever at it. In the morning we had pancakes again, crisp, hot, delicate pancakes with the most glorious coffee, before I was even out of my sleeping bag. That is what the carpenters had to offer me at five o'clock in the morning. No wonder I enjoyed their society. Nor did the men in the lower camp suffer any privation. 
Wisting showed himself to be possessed of eminent talents as cook for the day. His special dish was penguins and skyu gulls and cream sauce. It was served under the name of ptarmigan, of which it really reminded one. That Sunday we all went on board, with the exception of the necessary tent guards for both camps, and enjoyed life. We had worked hard enough that week. On Monday, January 23rd, we began to carry up the provisions. In order to save time, we had decided not to bring the provisions right up to the hut, but to store them, for the time being, on the elevation that lay on the other side, to the south of Mount Nelson. This spot was not more than 600 yards from the tent, but as the surface was rather rough here, we should save a good deal in the long run. Afterwards, when the Fram had sailed, we could take them the rest of the way. As it turned out, we never had time for this, so that our main store remained here. Sledging up to this point offered some difficulties at first. The dogs, who were accustomed to take the road to the lower camp between Nelson and Ronakin, could not understand why they might not do the same now. The journey with the empty sledges down to the ship was often particularly troublesome. From this point, the dogs could hear their companions on the other side of Nelson in the lower camp, and then it appeared more than once that the dogs took command. If they once got in the humor for playing tricks of that sort, it was by no means easy to get them under control. We all of us had this experience without exception. Not one of us escaped this little extra turn. As the provisions came up, each driver took them off his sledge and laid the cases in the order which they should lie. We began by placing each sort by itself in small groups over the slope. This plan had the advantage that eventually would be easy to find. The load was usually 660 pounds or six cases to each sledge. We had about 900 cases to bring up and reckoned that we should have them all in place in the course of a week. Everything went remarkably well according to our reckoning. By noon on Saturday, January 28th, the hut was ready and all the 900 cases were in place. The depot of provisions had quite an imposing appearance. Great rows of cases stood in the snow, all with their numbers outward, so that we could find what we wanted at once. And there was the house, all finished exactly as it had stood in its native place in Bungerford. But it would be difficult to imagine more different surroundings there. Green pine woods and splashing water, here ice, nothing but ice. Both scenes were beautiful. I stood thinking which I preferred. My thoughts traveled far, thousands of miles in a second. It was the forest that gained the day. As I had already mentioned, we had everything with us for fastening the hut down to the barrier. But the calm weather we had had all the time led us to suppose that the conditions would not be so bad as we had expected. We were therefore satisfied with the foundation dug in the barrier. The outside of the hut was tarred, and the roof covered with tarred paper, so that it was very visible against the white surroundings. That afternoon we broke up both camps and moved into our home, Fromhein. What a snug, cozy, and cleanly impression it gave us when we entered the door. Bright new linoleum everywhere in the kitchen as well as our living room. We had good reason to be happy. Other important point had been got over, and in much shorter time than I had ever hoped. Our path to the goal was opened up. We began to have a glimpse of the castle in the distance. 
The beauty is still sleeping, but the kiss is coming, the kiss that shall wake her. It was a happy party that assembled in the hut the first evening and drank to the future to the music of the gramophone. All the full-grown dogs were now brought up here and were fastened to wire ropes stretching in a square fifty yards on each side. It may be believed that they gave us some music. Collected as they were, they performed under the leadership of some great singer or other daily and, what was worse, nightly concerts. Strange beasts. What can they have meant by this howling? One began, then two, then a few more, and finally the whole hundred. As a rule, during a concert like this, they sit well down, stretch their heads as high in the air as they can, and howl to their heart's content. During this act, they seem very preoccupied and are not easily disturbed. But the strangest thing is the way the concert comes to an end. It stops suddenly along the whole line. No stragglers, no one cheer more. What is it that imposes this simultaneous stop? I have observed and studied it time after time without result. One would think it was a song that had been learnt. Do the animals possess a power of communicating with each other? The question is extraordinarily interesting. No one among us who has had the long acquaintance with Eskimo dogs doubt that they have this power. I learned at last to understand their different sounds so well that I could tell by their voices what was going on without seeing them. Fighting, play, love-making, etc., each had its special sound. If they wanted to express their devotion and affection for their master, they would do it in a quite different way. If one of them was doing something wrong, something they knew that they were not allowed to do, such as breaking into the meat store, for example, the others who could not get in ran out and gave vent to a sound quite different from those I had mentioned. I believe most of us learn to distinguish these different sounds. They can hardly be a more interesting animal to observe, or one that offers greater variety of study than the Eskimo dog. From his ancestor, the wolf, he has inherited the instinct of self-preservation, the right of the stronger, in a far higher degree than our domestic dog. The struggle for life has brought him early maturity and given him such qualities as frugality and endurance in an altogether surprising degree. His intelligence is sharp, clear, and well-developed for the work he is born to and the conditions in which he is brought up. We must not call the Eskimo dog slow to learn because he cannot sit up and take sugar when he is told. These are things so widely separated from the serious business of his life that he will never be able to understand them, or only with great difficulty. Among themselves, the right of the stronger is the only law. The strongest rules and does as he pleases undisputedly. Everything belongs to him. The weaker ones get the crumbs. Friendship easily springs up between the animals, always combined with respect and fear of the stronger. The weaker, with his instinct of self-preservation, seeks the protection of the stronger. The stronger accepts the position of protector and thereby secures a trusty helper, always with the thought of one stronger than himself. The instinct of self-preservation is to be found everywhere, and it is so too with their relations with man. The dog has learned to value man as his benefactor, from whom he receives everything necessary for his support. Affection and devotion seem almost to have their part in these relations, but no doubt on a closer examination the instinct of self-preservation is at the root of it all. As a consequence of this, his respect for his master is far greater than our domestic dog, 
with whom respect only exists as a consequence of fear of a beating. I could without hesitation take the food out of the mouth of any one of my twelve dogs. Not one of them would attempt to bite me. And why? Because their respect, as a consequence of the fear of getting nothing next time, was predominant. With my dogs at home, I certainly should not try the same thing. They would at once defend their food, and if necessary, they would not shrink from using their teeth. And this, in spite of the fact that these dogs have all appearance the same respect as the others. What, then, is the reason? Is it that this respect is not based on a serious foundation, the instinct of self-preservation, but simply on the fear of a hiding? A case like this proves that the foundation is too weak. The desire of food overcomes the fear of the stick, and the result is a snap. A few days later, the last member of the wintering party, Adolf Henrik Lindstrom, joined us, and with his arrival our arrangements might be regarded as complete. He stayed on board hitherto, attending to the cooking there, but now he is no longer necessary. His art would be more appreciated among the chatterers. The youngest member of the expedition, the cook Carinius Olsen, took over from that day the whole of the cooking on the Fram, and performed this work in an extremely conscientious and capable way until the ship reached Hobart in March of 1912, when he again had assistance. This was well done for a lad of twenty. I wish we had many like him. With Lindstrom, then, the kitchen and the daily bread were in order. The smoke rose gaily from the shining black chimney and proclaimed that now the barrier was really inhabited. How cozy it was! when we came sledging up after a day's work to see that smoke rising into the air. It is the little things, really, but nevertheless it means so much. With Lindstrom came not only food, but light and air, both of them his specialties. The Lux lamp was the first thing he rigged up, giving us a light that contributed much to the feeling of comfort and well-being through the long winter. He also provided us with air, but in this he had Stuberand as a partner. Those two together managed to give us the finest, purest barrier air in our room during the whole stay. It is true that this was not done without hard work, but they did not mind that. The ventilation was capricious and liable to fail now and then. This usually happened when there was a dead calm. Many were the ingenious devices employed by the firm to set the business going again. Generally, a primus stove was used under the exhaust pipe and ice applied to the supply pipe. While one of them lay on his stomach, with the primus under the exhaust, drawing up the air that way, the other ran up to the roof and dropped big lumps of snow down the supply to get the air in that way. In this fashion, they could keep it going by the hour together without giving up, finally ended in the ventilation becoming active again without visible cause. There is no doubt that the system of ventilation in a winter station like ours is of great importance, both to the health and comfort. I have read of expeditions, the members of which were constantly suffering from cold and damp and resulting sickness. This is nothing but a consequence of bad ventilation. If the supply of fresh air is sufficient, the fuel will be turned to better account, and the production of warmth will, of course, be greater. If the supply of air is insufficient, a great part of the fuel will be lost in an unconsumed state, and cold and damp will be the result. There must, of course, be a means of regulating the ventilation in accordance with requirements. We used only the Lux lamp in our hut, beside the stove in the kitchen, 
and with this we kept our room so warm that those of us in the upper berths were constantly complaining of the warmth. Originally there were places for ten bunks in the room, but as there were only nine of us, one of the bunks was removed and the space used for our chronometer locker. This contained three ordinary ship's chronometers. We had in addition six chronometer watches, which we wore continually, and which were compared throughout the whole winter. The meteorological instruments found a place in the kitchen, the only place we had for them. Lindstrom undertook the position of subdirector of the Farnheim Meteorological Station, an instrument maker to the expedition. Under the roof we stowed all of the things that would not stand severe frost, such as medicine, syrup, jam, cream, pickles, and sauces, besides all of our sledge boxes. A place was also made for the library under the roof. The week beginning on Monday, January 30th, was spent in bringing up coal, wood, oil, and our whole supply of dried fish. The temperature this summer varied between plus 5 degrees and minus 13 degrees Fahrenheit, a grand summer temperature. We also had shot many seals daily and already had a great pile of about a hundred of them lying just outside the door of the hut. One evening, as we were sitting at supper, Lindstrom came to tell us that we need not go down any more to the sea ice to shoot them, as they were coming to us. We went out and found he was right. Not far away, and making straight for the hut, came a crab-eater shining like silver in the sun. He came right up, was photographed, and shot. One day I had a rather curious experience. My best dog, Lassison, had his left hind paw frozen quite white. It happened while we were out sledging. Lassison was a lover of freedom, and had seen his chance of getting loose when unobserved. He used his freedom, like most of these dogs, for fighting. They love fighting and cannot resist it. He had picked a quarrel with Odin and Thor, and started a battle with them. In the course of the fight, the chains that fastened these two had got wound round Lassison's leg, and twisted so that the circulation had stopped. How long he had been standing so, I do not know. But when I came, I saw at once that the dog was in the wrong place. On a closer examination, I discovered the frostbite. I then spent half an hour in restoring the circulation. I succeeded in doing this by holding the paw continuously in my warm hand. At first, there was no feeling in the limb. It went well, but when the blood began to flow back, of course, it was painful, and Lassison became impatient. He whined and motioned with his head towards the affected place, as though he wanted to tell me that he found the operation unpleasant. He made no attempt to snap. The paw swelled a good deal after this treatment, but the next day Lassison was as well as ever, though a little lame in that leg. The entries in my diary at this time are all in telegraphic style, no doubt owing to the amount of work. Thus, an entry in February ends with the following words, An emperor penguin just came on a visit. Soup kettle. He did not give a very long epithet. During this week, we relieved the sea party of the last of the dogs, about twenty puppies. There was rejoicing on board when the last of them left the deck, and indeed one could not be surprised. With the thermometer about minus five degrees Fahrenheit, as it had been lately, it was impossible to keep the deck clean, as everything froze at once. After they had all been brought onto the ice, the crew went to work with salt and water and in a short time we recognized the Fram again. The puppies were put into boxes and driven up. We had put up a sixteen-man tent to receive them. From the very first moment they declined to stay in it, 
and there was nothing to be done but let them out. All these puppies passed a great part of the winter in the open air. So long as the seals' carcasses were lying on the slope, they stayed there. Afterwards they found another place. But the tent, despite the youngsters, came in to be useful after all. Any bitch that was going to have a litter was put in there, and the tent went by the name of the maternity hospital. Then one tent after another was put up, and Fraunheim looked quite an important place. Eight of the sixteen-man teams were set up for our eight teams, two for dried fish, one for fresh meat, one for cases of provisions, and one for coal and wood, fourteen altogether. They were arranged according to a plan drawn up beforehand, and when they were all up, they had quite the appearance of a camp. At this time, our dog harness underwent important alterations, as one of the members of the expedition had an happy idea of combining the Alaska and the Greenland harness. This result satisfied all requirements. In the future, we always used this construction, and we all agreed that it was much superior to any other harness. The dogs also seemed to be more comfortable in it. That they worked better and more easily is certain, and raw places so common with Greenland harness were absolutely unknown. February 4th was an eventful day. As usual, we all came down to the Fram, driving our empty sledges at half-past six in the morning. When the first man got to the top of the ridge, he began to wave his arms about and gesticulate like a madman. I understood, of course, that he saw something, but what? The next man gesticulated even worse and tried to shout to me, but it was no use. I could not make anything of it. Then it was my turn to go over the ridge, and, as was natural, I began to feel rather curious. I had only a few yards more to go, and then it was explained. Along the edge of the ice, just to the south of the Fram, a large rock laid moored. We had talked of the possibility of meeting the Terra Nova, Captain Scott's vessel, when she was on her way to King Edward Seven Land. But it was a great surprise, all the same. Now it was my turn to wave my arms, and I am sure I did it no worse than the first two. And the same thing was repeated with all of us as soon as one reached the top of the ridge. What the last man did I have never been able to find out for certain, but no doubt he waved his arms too. If a stranger had stood and watched us that morning on the ridge, he would have surely have taken us for a lot of incurable lunatics. The way seemed long that day. But at last we got there and heard the full explanation. The Terra Nova had come in at midnight. Our watchman had just gone below for a cup of coffee. There was no harm in that, and when he came up again, there was another ship lying off the foot of the barrier. He rubbed his eyes, pinched his leg, and tried other means of convincing himself that he was asleep. But it was no good. The pinch especially, he told us afterwards, was horribly painful, and all this led to the conclusion that there really was a second vessel there. Lieutenant Campbell, the leader of the Eastern Party, which was to explore King Edward's Seventh Land, came on board first and paid Nielsen a visit. He brought the news that they had not been able to reach land and were now on their way back to McMurdo Sound. From thence it was their intentions to go to Cape North and explore the land there. Immediately after my arrival, Lieutenant Campbell came on board again and gave me the news himself. We then loaded our sledges and drove home. At nine o'clock we had the great pleasure of receiving Lieutenant Purnell, the commander of the Terra Nova, Lieutenant Campbell, and the surgeon of the expedition as the first guests in our new home. We spent a couple of very agreeable hours together. Later in the day three of us paid a visit to the Terra Nova and stayed on board to lunch. 
our hosts were extremely kind, and offered to take our mail to New Zealand. If I had had time, I should have been glad to avail myself of this friendly offer, but every hour was precious. It was no use to think of writing now. At two o'clock in the afternoon, the Terra Nova cast off again and left the Bay of Wales. We made a strange discovery after this visit. Nearly all of us had caught cold. It did not last long, only a few hours, and then it was over. The former took was sneezing and cold in the head. The next day, Sunday, February 5th, the Sea Rovers, as we called the Fram Party, were our guests. We had to have them in two detachments, as they could not all leave the ship at the same time. Four came to dinner and six to supper. We had not much to offer, but we invited them not so much for the sake of entertainment as to show them our new home and wish them a successful voyage. End of section 12, end of volume 1, chapter 5, On the Barrier. Recorded by Ken Campbell.